Now, I've mentioned um, at times in the recent past that our family has grown in, in, the, in recent months over the last year. We have, we have gone, Becca and I have gone from having uh, a daughter and two sons to also having two cats. Meow, indeed. We have a one-year-old gray male named J.C., and a three-year-old black female named Raven, and we lovingly refer to them as J.J. and Ray Ray. And they're kind of like our Garfield and Odie. You know, so you remember Odie is the sweet, lovable, but kind of simple dog, and that's Raven. She's, she's sweet, and she's, she purrs, and she cuddles, and, she, and she's always happy, but she's not the smartest cat you've ever seen. She has sort of this blank expression on her face. It's cute, but it's very, very blank. But then you have J.C. He's the grouchy one. He's the one who's always been out of shape about something. He's not antisocial, and he's not mean. You know, you all have experienced cats like that, the ones that whenever someone walks in the room, they're the first to leave, and they disappear, and you don't see them for hours. Or they're the ones that you can't put your hand anywhere near them, or they'll growl and hiss and spit and bite and claw. No, that's not J.C. He's just grouchy. He's always been out of shape. He's always got the, the sourpuss look on his face. He slinks around, and he's jealous of his sister, and he's hard to please. But we know he loves us. We know he loves his family. Um, he's, he's beautiful, untouchable, but he does love us. And we, we were assured of that when we got back from our trip to Mississippi a couple of weeks ago. Because when we come, came home, and, and the cats were waiting there for us for the next week, J.C. was not like himself. He was happy. He would purr. He was always there with the bright eyes, just waiting for a touch or a, a, some type of affection and, and ready to return it, which was very out of character for him. Um, and so we knew that, that us being gone had distressed him and that he was uh, not happy with, with the, the change of things and that he was delighted that, that we were back. Now, we have another trip coming up here in, in July for general conference, and we're going to be gone for another week. And, and I wish there was some way that I could say something to this cat to let him know that we're not leaving him for good, because I know he'll be distressed again. I wish there was some way that I could assure him that, that I'm not abandoning him, we're not forsaking him, that we're going to come back to him, and that no matter what, no matter how unlovable he is, no matter how grouchy he can be, he's always going to be loved. Not going to happen. <laughs> Drug him for a week. There you go, Barbary. That's the solution. I want him to know I'm not leaving him. I want him to know I'm coming back. And I want him to know that no matter how unlovable, he is loved. And that is our segue into our text here this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 14. And I know we've spent a lot of time in John this year um, and so, uh, it, whether on Sunday morning or Wednesday night, uh, we've been in John a lot. And we're going to be in 1 John next week. So, uh, if you're tired of John, this is my apology to you in advance. I hope you're not tired of John. I don't think we can ever, ever grow tired of him. But um, you remember the context here in chapter 14. They're, they're, Jesus is with his disciples there in the upper room. It's their last night together. And he begins at the beginning of this chapter by saying, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Now, you might be saying, if, if you're not entirely familiar with the passage or the context, you might be saying, well, what, why are they troubled? What has them distressed? Well, a few pages back, or a page back, or a few verses back, 
Jesus said several things to them that would be very distressing indeed. Number one, he said, one of you will betray me. That's distressing. Secondly, he said, I'm leaving. That's really distressing. Jesus says, my own heart is troubled. So wow, it's, it's, you know, Jesus has always been cool as a cucumber. And now here, Jesus himself is distressed. And then if, if that wasn't enough, he says, oh, and by the way, Peter, you're going to deny me. Peter, the rock, the one who claimed he'd go with Jesus to the ends of the earth. Even Peter will deny him. So naturally, his disciples at this point are distressed. One of them is a betrayer. Jesus is leaving. Jesus himself is distressed, and Peter himself will deny him. And Jesus, knowing the hearts of people and knowing especially the hearts of his disciples, is, is going to use the words that come to give them comfort. He's going to do what I can't do with my cat. <laughs> He's going to give them words. He's going to give them truth that will carry them through the time that lies ahead. He knows exactly what to say. And what he chooses to talk about here this morning is going to be the topic of our sermon on what the church calendar calls this Trinity Sunday. Today's Trinity Sunday, in case you had missed that somehow. John chapter 14, look at this together with me, beginning in verse 15 and going down to verse 31. We're on page 867 if you happen to grab one of our guest Bibles in the back. Verse 15, if you love me, obey my commandments, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. No, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Since I live, you also will live. When I am raised to life again, and you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my Father will love them, and I will love them, and reveal myself to each of them. I think I said verse 31 a second ago. I meant to say verse 21. Forgive me. That, that concludes our reading right there. So Jesus is promising the Spirit. Now this isn't the first time as you know, in the Gospel of John that Jesus has referred to the Holy Spirit. You might recall back in, in chapter 1 at Jesus' baptism, we have the testimony of John the Baptist who himself saw the Spirit descend in the form of a dove and rest upon Jesus. Now, th this is different than the way the Holy Spirit would come upon people in the Old Testament. And you teens that, had, uh, that were here last Wednesday night and Pastor Jeff was teaching, and you remember what he was teaching about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, how, how he, would, he would come upon people for a specific task or for a particular moment. And I think the lesson was on Samson, and the idea was that he would kind of, the Spirit would come upon Samson, he would sort of become the Incredible Hulk and kind of this, this big green rage monster and have all this power and do all these great things for God. And, and, and that's kind of what you see in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit comes upon people for specific tasks or purposes. But here, John says, I saw the Spirit come down and rest and remain upon him. And there's something very distinct about what he witnessed and what he saw that tells us something unique about the identity of Jesus. Throughout the gospel, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the giver of life. So you remember there in, in chapter 3 when Jesus is talking with Nicodemus, and he says basically, you know, humans 
uh, verse 6, humans reproduce human life, but the Holy Spirit gives spiritual life. He is the spiritual life giver. In fact, in chapter 6, verse uh, 63, the Holy Spirit alone gives eternal life. He is the life giver. And of course, you remember the discussion with the, the, the Samaritan woman um, at the well in chapter 4, and again later in chapter 7 when Jesus likens the Holy Spirit to living water. He says in seven thirty-eight and 9, anyone who believes in me may come and drink For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. And when he said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit who would be given to everyone believing in him. Just as the prophets foretold. Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah, all the prophets who said the Spirit would come as a result of the the work of the Messiah. He will well up from within you like living water. These are the things that Jesus has said about the Spirit up to this point. But now he's saying something more, isn't he? He's saying something more. He's not just some source of power. He's not just an agent of life. He's not just a source of cleansing and renewal. He is those things. But he's more. Jesus said in verse 16, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. Now, you know that word advocate is the Greek word paraclete, which means like a a counselor, a, a, a defender, um, one who comforts, one who comes alongside. Yes, but it is the word another that has captured my attention here. I will ask the Father, he will give you another advocate, another counselor, another paraclete. Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit is another one who comforts. He is another one who comes alongside of them just like Jesus. He's saying, he's just like me. I came alongside of you. I have been your comfort. I have been your counselor. I have been your teacher. I'm getting ready to go, but another one just like me is going to come alongside of you, and the only difference is he will never leave. And he's not a stranger. You know, when I was in school, I'll never forget, any time the teacher was gone on a particular day and the substitute teacher would come in. By the way, are there any, anybody in here who's, who's ever been a substitute teacher? Okay, quite a few of you. It's hard being a substitute teacher, isn't it? I think that's going to be like the most hearty amen I get of the morning right there. (laughs) Substitute teachers are the ones that the students are always like probing. Like where can I, where can I kind of like find the chink in the armor? Right. Zoo keeping. All right. Are there any zookeepers? Yeah, Yeah, that's, that's, yeah. But the thing about the substitute teacher to the student is oftentimes they're total strangers. You know, the teacher's gone, the one you know, and here this strange new person is here. It's this weird sensation of having someone else in the room. Jesus is not saying, when I go and the other one comes, he's going to be like a substitute teacher. Some sort of weird stand-in, sort of strange, unknown, kind of mysterious thing. He's, no, he says, you know him. Well, how do we know him, they, they would say. Well, you know him because he lives with you now and he will be in you then. Now, last week, what did, what did we celebrate? What was last Sunday? Pentecost. So, Pentecost is, what, what, do, we, what do we acknowledge happened on Pentecost? The, the Holy Spirit came. Well, Pastor Sean, the Holy Spirit came some 50 plus days, 53, beyond this moment. So, if the Holy Spirit didn't come for another 53 days from this moment... 
How then can Jesus say you know him because, he is, because he's already with you now? In what way has the Holy Spirit been with them that they actually know him to where he's not going to be a stranger to them? Where he's not like the substitute teacher? Where he's another like Jesus? How, how has he been with them? Well, the answer is because of Jesus. Because of the way the Spirit came upon Jesus. Because of the unique relationship of the Son and the Spirit. Because of, of the ministry of Jesus and the person of Jesus. Because of Jesus, they already know his Spirit. Look again at some of the things he says here concerning his return. So Jesus said he's leaving, but he's also promising to come back. Look at some of the things he says there. In verse 18 he says, I will not abandon you, I will come to you. So there's a promise of some kind to come back to them, isn't there? He also says in verse 20, um, you will know in that day that I am in my Father, that you are in me, and that I am in you. Later in verse 23, which we didn't read, he says, um, all who love me will do what I say, my Father will love them, and we will come and make our home with each of them. The beginning of verse 28, I am going away, but I will come back to you again. Now it is true as we read through the upper room discourse there are times when Jesus is talking about coming back or returning to his disciples. There are different senses in which he's talking about that. And at times it's hard to kind of discern what he's talking about and when. And sometimes there's some overlap in what he's saying. It is true when he's talking about coming back. He does at some level mean in his resurrection. The world will no longer see me, but then you will see me. Your grief will turn to joy. So he's talking there about his bodily resurrection from the grave, and they will witness him. They will be the first eyewitnesses that he lives again and will live forever. There's also, at times, a sense of he's talking about coming back sort of at the end of time, that there's this final return that they can anticipate as his believers in the world. But I think the predominant idea that Jesus wants his disciples to understand, and I think it's the key to understanding not only what he's saying about the Spirit, but to unlocking the great mystery of what our salvation is all about, is he talks about this coming back in the sense of his coming back to them in the person of the Spirit. When the other advocate comes, a different person than Jesus, he's not saying, I am the Spirit, or the Spirit is me. They're distinct persons within the triune Godhead. The nature of God is persons He's not saying, I am the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit is me. But what he's saying is, I am in the Spirit, and he's in me. We are in each other in such a way that you know him already because you know me. And he has been with you. He's with you now in me. And, and I am coming back to you. When the Spirit comes, I will come to you in him because I'm in the Spirit and will be in you. It's this really fascinating deep dive into the, the great mysteries of God. And it's kind of the same things he's been already saying about the Father, isn't it? All throughout this, the, the, the Gospel of John, whenever Jesus is talking about the Father, he's been saying things like, I am in the Father. The Father is in me. The Father and I are one. To know me, Jesus says, is to know the Father. They're asking him in the upper room, Jesus, reveal the Father to us. And Jesus says, have I not been revealing him to you all this time? Every word I've said, every miracle I've performed, every teaching and every gesture and every touch has been revealing the Father to you. Because the Father is in me. I'm not the Father. I'm the Son. But I reveal the Father. I make him known to you. 
And it's, it's, it's amazing to me as we get to this, this passage here in, in chapter 14, Jesus is basically saying the exact same thing about the Spirit. You know him, you have been with him because you know me and you've been with me. And I'm coming to you when he comes to you because I'm in him. And by the way, what's the ministry of the Spirit? The rest of the whole upper room discourse is about what? The Spirit's going to come, he's going to comfort you, he's going to teach you, but what's he going to say? He's going to teach you the things I have said. The whole role in ministry and person of the Spirit is to point back to Jesus. So the role of the, of the Spirit, the person of the Spirit, reveals the person of the Son, and the person of the Son is to reveal the Father, and the Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Spirit. We're, we're starting to get a, a grasp, a handle on, these mysterious things that Jesus is trying to reveal to us about the nature of God. You know him because you know me. For to know me is to know him. And this is their comfort. This is their comfort in their distress. That Jesus is coming back. Yes, I'm leaving, but I'm coming back to you. But I'm coming back to you in a greater, deeper way, a way so far beyond your wildest hopes and expectations. You know, in their minds, the greatest possible scenario would be for Jesus, Messiah, to do what? What's the greatest thing Messiah could do for them as far as they were concerned in that moment. Well, let's, let's go out and crush those Romans. Let's, 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 we will follow you into a political revolution that will mean our independence. And you're going to remove all the barriers that exist between people and, and the right worship of the one true God. And, and God's rule and his word will reign. And in their minds, that's the greatest thing that Jesus, Messiah, could do for them. And yet, he can't do any of those things in their minds if he leaves. <laughs> Jesus, if you leave, how are we going to incite this revolution? If you leave, how are we going to re remove all the barriers between you know, people and the right worship of the one true God? How are we going to be free? How will, how will we establish God's reign upon the earth as the waters cover the sea if you leave? And what's more, we're still in Jerusalem, Jesus, and there are people looking for you right now. We're, we're, we're hiding because of all the opposition, because of all the enemies, all the people that would love nothing more than to end whatever movement you have begun. That's what they want. But Jesus has far more in mind than that, doesn't he? as he often does. He has a whole lot more in mind for them than they could ever imagine. He will conquer enemies, but the greater spiritual enemies that wage war on their soul. He will work, but he'll work in the heart to remove the obstacles between us and the right worship of the one true God. He is going to bring a freedom, but it's not freedom from political oppression. It's freedom from from sin and death and the enemy of our souls. Freedom from the imprisonment that we have to the world and the flesh and the devil. He does offer a peace, but it's not a peace that's marked by the cessation of trouble, as if now we can have smooth coasting lives, we're just going to hop aboard the Jesus Express 
and it's the, it's the gravity lift where you don't even feel any friction with the ground. Everything's smooth sailing from here. And Jesus says, no, I'm not offering you that kind of peace. It's not a, a peace that is an absence of trouble. No, it is one that is marked by the wholeness that the presence of God is and brings amidst the troubles. And on the final night of his earthly ministry, Jesus comforts his troubled disciples with the deeper truths of God and the salvation that he provides. He's so much greater than they know, and his plans are so much greater than they can imagine. <clears throat> now, in my, I was counting the other day, I'm not a mathematician, but I can do basic arithmetic. By my count, I have been involved in some form of Christian leadership or ministry for 25 years, going all the way back to my senior year of high school when I was the president of my school's FCA, which had like 120 kids in it. So it was like being in charge of a big youth group. And in all those years of Christian leadership and ministry, I have observed that the same types of things that troubled and were a problem for the disciples of Jesus in, in the Gospels and in the, in the epistles tend to be the same kinds of things that people struggle with today. We're all cut from the same cloth, aren't we? Same kinds of things for them are the same kinds of things for us. We have this tendency. As we think about God and the, and the salvation that you and I believe in and, and, and claim for our lives, we have this tendency to settle for a very watered-down, oversimplified, surface-level type of experience and understanding. Oftentimes, our view of salvation resembles little more than a basic transaction that takes place between us and God. It's a transaction, right? God did this thing a long time ago. He did this thing. And now I just have to say some words and do some good stuff, and, and, and I'm in good shape. God's good, I'm good. We're good. It's this transaction. It's kind of like, you know, when you go to, um, well, let's just say Tony's. You go to Tony's, you, uh, you're hungry for a, a stromboli, which, by the way, is the best in town. There's not a better stromboli anywhere on God's green earth than Tony's stromboli. If you don't believe me, then go get you one. You'll thank me later. In fact, you can, we'll go together and you can buy mine for me. <laughs> Their fried ravioli is pretty good too. So you get a fried ravioli because you're really hungry and everything's good. And, and you know what? The meatballs, are, they, they're good too. So you got yourself some meatballs. And before you know it, you've, you've bought half the menu. And, and the waiter comes out or waitress comes out with the bill. And suddenly you realize you don't have what it takes to cover the bill. You're in a jam. But lo and behold... Some benevolent stranger across the room has offered to pay for your smorgasbord meal. How many of you have thought of your salvation like that? I've got some debt, and it's more than I can pay, and I'm in trouble. But fortunately, someone out there has done the thing that I don't have to pay for it. Now, I'm not removing that aspect from, from our understanding of salvation. Of course, there's a sense of we, we owe something that we can't pay, and Christ has paid the debt. He is this, the atoning sacrifice for us. Of course. 
But you know the problem with thinking about things in that way alone is that that transaction can be completely impersonal. You don't have to know the benevolent stranger paying for your ticket to have your ticket paid for, do you? And by the way, I thought of Tony's because I've had that exact same thing happen to me where I actually knew who the person was. Someone I know from the church was there that day, saw me and, and the staff. We were having our staff lunch, and they, they bought our meal for us. It was so generous. And we will be there Tuesday at noon this week. <laughs> if you happen to be at Tony's, you know, anyway. But I thought of Tony's because it's happened at, there at Tony's. But it just so happened I knew the person, so it doesn't completely work. But you don't have to know the person, do you? The transaction can be 100% impersonal. And it, it can, and it can also just be this one-time thing. They, they paid the bill. You're good. They're good. We go our separate ways. The debt has been paid. I, I have grave concerns with that being the sole view or rubric by which we understand what God's saving grace is all about. When that's the sum total of grace, that it's this impersonal transaction, God has done the thing, I haven't said yes to the thing, we go our separate ways. I don't think Jesus is offering that for a second in the upper room. I don't think there's, he's miles away from that view of things. And I want to know Jesus, in their time of distress, in their time of need, when, when all the, all the, you know, everything is coming to a head here, this sort of crisis moment in their lives and in the, the history of the world. What are you offering, Jesus? And Jesus says, well, to grasp ultimately what I'm offering you, you have to first grasp who I am. To understand what God is offering, it begins with understanding who God is. Now, I'm not going to suggest we can ever know God exhaustively. Of course we can't know him exhaustively. God is beyond us. He's transcendent. He's, he's infinite. And you and I are the opposite of all those things. We can never fully wrap our minds around God. There's, he's a mystery to us. And yet, he has revealed enough for us to know in order to be saved. And so, I want to know what God wants me to know about himself. And, and in order to do that, we need theology. We need to get theological. And I know right there, I probably just cut 50% of you off from, from me. You just turned off. You just, you know, I'm with you on wanting to know more about Jesus and wanting to understand what he's offering in the time of need. But now you use the T word. We're, we're, we're frightened of theology. And, and for some of you, rightfully so, we get uncomfortable with it because it deals with complicated words and ideas. And, and, and you and I have seen far too many people and witnessed far too many people that, that come in with the fancy suit and they have the, the, the degrees and the, the, you know, the, the, the silver tongue and, and they, the, slick, the slick presentation and they have all the things, they say all the right stuff, and you walk away feeling farther from God than before they came. Theology is not practical, Right? It's not practical. It belongs out there somewhere in the, in the academy with all the stuffed shirt people. It has no bearing on my life. It doesn't cure my disease. It doesn't rescue and save my marriage. It doesn't help me pay for gas. I wish theology helped pay for gas. You see me reading a lot of theology at this gas stations. My goodness. It's not practical. But listen. Listen. 
on the, on the night of his disciples' greatest distress. On the precipice of their greatest failures. In the midst of their most overwhelming uncertainty and fear. Right in the middle of that, in the intimacy of their last supper together, Jesus gets as deep and as theological as anyone in the entire Bible. It's Jesus' approach. What is the answer to your distress? What is the answer to your conflict? What is the answer for your sin? What is the answer for your shame and your fear? And whatever else is troubling you in life, according to Jesus, it's theology. It's theology. Now, it's not because Jesus views theology as the thing that helps him show off. (laughs) That's the slick guy in the suit and the fancy words that leaves you feeling farther off from God than before they came. No, to Jesus, theology is not meant to impress or to make you think highly of him. No, theology is meant to reveal and invite. Reveal and invite. And let me tell you, and you can apply this to me even right now, any theologizing that you hear or read or listen to or whatever or see, any theologizing that does not result in revealing God or inviting you to him is bad theologizing. Because that's the point of it. It's not to impress. It's not to make you feel it's not to put you in your place. I'm up here, so I'm going to use all these big words so that you feel less than me and, I, and you think highly of me. Or I think less of you, you think highly of me. That is as wicked and sinful and an, a, opposed to the mind and heart of God as it gets. No, the theologizing of Jesus in this moment is to reveal and invite, to offer, to provide what is needed. To Jesus, the answer to distress, the answer to sin, the answer to failure and shame and fear and uncertainty is, to to borrow a line from Oswald Chambers, it is to cast out into the great deeps of God. That's the answer to those things. To cast out into the great deeps of God. Not because the deeper you go, the smarter you get and more equipped you are to impress people with your vocabulary, but because the deeper you cast the greater your experience of God. And your experience of God, not just theoretically, not just in the abstract, not even impersonally, but your experience of God intimately, person to person, that is the very essence of the salvation that Jesus is offering you today. That is salvation. It's not an impersonal transaction. It is an invitation into the life of God into the family of God, to commune with the persons of God. And we have to grasp him in order to grasp what he offers, because what he offers is himself. That's the offer. Grace is not just, um, what's the phrase we use? Unmerited favor. Grace is not just unmerited favor. Unmerited favor can be very impersonal. You can offer a merited favor to anyone out in the world and they would never know your name or have any relationship with you whatsoever. 
he does offer unmerited favor. Of course, you don't deserve anything that he offers you. It's all a gift. But grace, in its essence, is not just impersonal favor. It is the offering of himself. He is his grace. He is grace. He's offering him, not just some thing. He's offering himself. Richard Masservi sent me a, a really good quote um, Friday from Charles Spurgeon. He had mentioned it in our uh, board meeting the, the night before, and I'd asked him to, to send it to me so that I could read it to you. Um, Spurgeon's talking about Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, there in Luke chapter 10. And you remember the story, Jesus is coming to, to have a meal with them, and, and one of them, you know, Martha, she's, she's doing what? She's in the kitchen. She's getting things ready. She's all pr- totally preoccupied with making sure everything's perfect for the arrival of Jesus. And then Mary, of course, she's doing what? She's, she's out there greeting Jesus. She's spending time with him. She's face-to-face, heart-to-heart, connecting with the one she loved. And Martha resented Mary, didn't she, for doing that. Listen to what Spurgeon says about verse 40. Verse 40 says, Martha was distracted with much serving. Here's what Spurgeon says. Her fault was not that she served. So again, it's not wrong to serve. It's her fault was not that she served. The condition of a servant well becomes every Christian. I serve should be the motto of all the princes of the royal family of heaven. Nor was it her fault that she had much serving. We cannot do too much. Let us do all that we possibly can. Let head and heart and hands be engaged in the master's service. It was no fault of hers that she was busy preparing a feast for the master. Happy Martha to have an opportunity of entertaining so blessed a guest. And happy too to have the spirit to throw her whole soul so heartily into the engagement. So it wasn't bad that she was serving. It wasn't bad that she was serving much. It wasn't bad that she was delighted to serve. These are all great things. And they're befitting the name those who call themselves Christian. Her fault was that she grew cumbered or distracted or hampered. That was her fault. That she was hampered by her much serving so that she forgot him and remembered only the service. I know there's some of you here today that can say, wow, I've, I've forgotten him and just remembered the service of him. She allowed service, Spurgeon continues, to override communion. We ought to be Martha and Mary in one. Yes, we should do much service and have much communion at the same time. For this we need great grace. For it is easier to serve than to commune. Beloved, while we do not neglect external things which are good enough in themselves, we also ought to see to it that we enjoy living, personal fellowship with Jesus. The first thing for our soul's health, the first thing for his glory, and the first thing for our own usefulness is to keep ourselves in perpetual communion with him and to see that the vital spirituality of our religion is maintained over and above everything else in all the world. Man, that's a great quote. 
What's, what's Spurgeon saying? Well, he's saying, yes, serving is good and right. It's befitting those who call him Lord. But the, the concern of primary importance and significance and blessing for your life is to commune with God. To commune with him. It can be a whole lot easier to serve. In fact, we can get so caught up in the service, like Martha, that we can neglect the communion altogether. And it's all about my action, my effort. I've done the things. I've worked hard. God must be pleased with me. I don't have any relationship with God, but I'm doing these things for him. He's out there somewhere, and he must be pleased if he's watching me at all. And I'm doing my good work. Of course, there's many today who call themselves Christians who don't even want to work or serve. They, they want to show up and occupy a comfortable spot and be blessed, ha- sing some songs they, they grew up singing, and they go home feeling good about themselves, but they have no communion with God, and they have no service whatsoever for Christ. The transaction has occurred, right? He did the thing. I said the thing. He's good. I'm good. It can't be changed. I'm in. The rest is just window dressing. Listen, the stuff matters, okay? I'm not saying that service doesn't matter. I mean, Jesus begins this whole passage with, if you love me, keep my commandments. Obey my word. It it forms the very substance of how you show you love me. Obedience is not, you know, incidental to the Christian life. It's not optional. It's if, if you accept him as your savior, you're accepting him as your Lord. You receive, but then you obey. It's, that is the, the equation that, that can never be changed. Of course, the stuff matters, but he doesn't just want your obedience. He wants you. Not just your works. He wants your heart. He wants your time. It's like the, the wife who is crying out to her emotionally detached husband. You know, the one who, who's always out with his buddies. He never shows any interest in her life. She is nothing more than something to, to please him or gratify him, to, to do the laundry or the chores, to fix the meals. And every now and then when he screws up bad enough, you know, he'll just send her a bouquet of flowers and that kind of fixes things, right? And the wife says, I don't want your stinking flowers. I want you. Not some impersonal thing. I want you. I want your heart. I want your devotion. I want your attention. I want want you to adore me. I want you to love me. I want you to spend time with me. Not in some weird, like obsessive, unnatural, unbalanced way, but in a way that befitting a husband and wife. I want you. I don't want your stuff. I want you. That's what God's saying to you and to me today. The the goal here is not for you to just serve me. Some impersonal thing where you do all this stuff and I'm happy and you're happy, whatever. You grumble but you get over it and then, you know, does God need your service today? Does he need it? Is God incomplete apart from your service? He doesn't need it. And if the service isn't born out of a deep, abiding relationship, then it's not what he wants at all from you. Because he doesn't want your stuff. He wants you. And the thing that you need most, 
the thing you were created for, the thing that meets your deepest needs, not the thing that solves all of your problems, but the thing that is your life and your strength and your victory amidst the problems, the thing that saves is not something from him, but him. It's him. What is Jesus offering his disciples in the moment of greatest need? He's offering himself in the Spirit and the Father. The whole life of God with you and in you. Jesus says, the whole purpose of my coming and my teaching and my miracle working and my going to the cross and to the grave and in my returning through the resurrection and the spirit and the end of time, the goal of it all is so that you would know me and love me and follow me and receive me and commune with me in the spirit and the Father. That's the whole point. That communion is life. And that's the whole point of this sermon. This second of four sermons that's exploring with awestruck wonder the nature of this great salvation for us. That this salvation is only ever a triune salvation. Persons in communion. That's who God is. That's what, he, what created us, and that's what we were created to experience and be. That is our life, communion with God. I am in him. He is in me. I am in you. I love how C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity helps us to see this really deep, and I know it's deep, but I told you theology should have the, the, the effect of revealing and inviting. So I hope your, 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 your mind and heart are being opened up like a like a a flower to the fullness of the the radiance of God's being, the glory of who he is, and that you feel invited into his life and that you are welcoming him into your life. If that's not happening right now, then something's something's missing between me and you because that's my whole heart's intent. But in, in the midst of all this theologizing and all this deep thinking and this abstract and heady and wordy stuff, in the midst of all of that, C.S. Lewis says something that's just so helpful And he helps us see all of this at work in just the simplest of things that you and I can do. If I've read this to you before, I hope it it comes as a refreshing reminder. He says this, An ordinary simple Christian kneels down to say his prayers. It's not some expert, some super advanced, you know, uh, elite. No, he says an ordinary simple Christian, you and me, kneels down to say his prayers He is trying to get into touch with God. But if he is a Christian, he knows that what is prompting him to pray is also God. So he's wanting to get into touch with God, but the thing prompting him to pray is God. God, so to speak, inside him. But he also knows that all his real knowledge of God comes through Christ, the man who was God. That Christ is standing beside him, helping helping him to pray, praying for him. You see what is happening? God is the thing to which he's praying, the goal he is trying to reach. God is also the thing inside him which is pushing him on, the motive power. God is also the road or bridge along which he is being pushed to the goal. 
so that the whole threefold life of the three personal being is actually going on in that ordinary little bedroom where an ordinary man is saying his prayers. Even in the simplest, the simplest of prayers, you and I are being drawn into the triune life of God. And I know many of you probably came from an experience of prayer where you felt like, you know, in order for prayer to work, I have to say exactly the right words. I have to say the right words. I have to say it in just the right way. And somehow I'm going to call out to that super distant person out there and just uh, with a wish and a prayer, maybe it will get past the roof of the room I'm in. Like that's, that's our experience of prayer. That's our perspective of it. I, little old me, I have got problems. I'm hoping he cares about my problems. I hope he's aware of my problems. I hope he's willing to take a little bit of his time to help me out. So I'm going to call out to him. Hopefully I say it the right way. Say it loud enough. Say it clear enough that he can hear and understand and maybe he'll respond. And I don't think that's what's going on in prayer at all. No, praying in the name of Jesus is to enter into the very communion that God himself is. Father, Son, and Spirit from eternity past, sharing life, sharing love, a, an inner dialogue of persons. When you pray, it is, it is you stepping into that enveloped in the life of God. He's the one you're praying to. He's the one helping you pray. He's the means by which you pray. He's praying for you alongside of you. You're placing yourself right square into the middle of the communion that is life. He created you for communion with himself. He's the one who has come to rescue you from the death of of absolute autonomy and individualism. You weren't created to be an individual. You were created to be a person. And a person, by definition, is always in communion with another. You cannot be a person by yourself. It's not true for God. It's not true for you. You cannot find completion. You cannot find wholeness. You cannot find life within yourself. It comes from another God has created you this way to image himself. And, and all of your salvation comes from communion for communion. At creation, the self-sufficient three-in-one God out of love made room within himself for, for others that were not himself. And he's inviting you in. Come into me. Come commune with me. Don't just serve me. Receive me. Don't just give me your acts. Give me your heart. Person to persons. And when we by faith say yes to his gracious offer of salvation, we're not getting unmerited favor. We're getting him. Now I know when we first come to faith, oftentimes it's for reasons like, well, I don't want to go to hell. <laughs> 
So I will gladly accept this offer of being saved from hell. Or I'm really broken and I'm, I'm, I am open to the offer of healing and wholeness. I'm tired of feeling guilty. I'm tired of living with shame. And all those things Christ wants to take away absolutely. But the problem with that view of coming to Jesus is it's all very self-focused, isn't it? What can you do for me? How can you fix what I need? How can you solve my problem? And you can't expect more than that from a sinful person because that's but sinful people by definition are self-centered. So it's okay. Appeal to their sinfulness. <laughs> hey, if you, want, if you care about your life, come to Jesus because apart from him, you have no life and your, your, your destiny is death. So absolutely appeal to people's felt needs and desire to live. But for those of you who have said yes to him and you've been, been walking with him and you want to walk deeper and you, want, you know there's more to the Christian life than some impersonal transaction. You know there's more than that because that alone does not save. That alone does not heal. That alone is not comfort in my time of need and distress. It does nothing for me in my times of, of, of trouble and disaster. No, you and I need to hear Jesus' call to cast out into the great deeps of God. There's more than impersonal transaction for you. No, he wants you to better know who he is, that you might better understand who he is, that you might better experience who he is and what he is offering. A triune salvation in Jesus' name. And that's only ever what we will preach and teach and live at this church. It's never an impersonal salvation, ever. It is persons inviting you back into fellowship and communion with themselves with himself, God. That's it. Nothing more and nothing less than that. And that's what we get to do here in a moment as we receive communion. It's not a, it's not a coincidence that it's called communion. We're not just remembering the past. We're experiencing him in the present. In all his fullness, Father, Son, and Spirit are inviting us to feast with intimacy and love at the table Christ has prepared for us. Let us pray. Lord, thank you that you are offering an invitation to be known and to be received and experienced. Lord, we want to know you more. I know for some this sermon may have been confusing. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be helping them overcome whatever distractions there might have been in their minds or hearts as, as I was trying to, to proclaim the truths of, of your word. Help them to, to, to not be intimidated by deep thoughts or fancy words. This is not the intention of anyone's heart here today. Lord, but may you be revealing yourself at some level here today. Help us to know you better, that we might love you more and experience you more and be drawn more into you and you into us. And may all of our works and all of our service and all of our obedience, all of that stuff, be a byproduct of our relationship with you and not the substance of it. We don't, have, we don't have fellowship with you because we do all the stuff. We have fellowship with you because you have invited and made a way for us to. And everything we do beyond that is in response. Everything. So help us to think rightly, to live rightly, to worship rightly, to speak rightly with one another and with the world about who you are and all that you're offering. And be glorified through it all, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.